Welcome to CBC this morning. Uh, let me clear up two things before we begin. One, <clears throat> I'm going to do this for you so you don't have to do it to me. You're going to look at me at some point this morning, you're going to find me, and you're going to think you're clever, and you're going to say, Charlie, doing a sermon on silence, why don't we just practice what we preach, okay? Uh, <laughs> one, I get paid by the word. We're up here for a while. Two, is uh, I got to clear up something that happened last week. Last week, we were talking about solitude. And I talked about how I'm trying to practice in my world, and I stepped off the stage, and a good friend of mine found me and said, so you like to beat up your child. If you weren't here, one of the things I said last week was one way that I'm trying to practice solitude is I'm trying to beat my child up in the morning. I didn't hear it, guys. I never heard it, and I kept saying the phrase, I just want to beat my kid up. I did not hear it. I apologize. That is why we pray in these moments that you listen with grace and compassion, and we're not critics but contributors to the conversation because I need it. You know the scariest thing about that, though? I said, I want to beat my child up in the morning, and then I followed it with, we're 10 days in, and she's won every day. <laughs> I know I'm not the definition of masculinity, but she's this big, you know, so... All that said, we're going to start like we do, and we're going to start by just centering our hearts and, and setting out before us our desire to find God. And so we do that by praying. We take a minute so that you might pray to yourself, and you might pray for me, that we might listen with charity, that we might be a people that aren't critics in this moment because our culture is so critical. It's what we teach now. We come to this place knowing that God will speak in and through his word this morning, and so we pray that we might be contributors to the conversation of faith and, and not critics. So join me and pray with me this morning. God, I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful that you're a God that speaks in and through silence. I'm thankful that we can look at how you talk to us in a really loud world this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you speak in and through the text and show us more of the goodness of God. If you're comfortable, say a quick prayer for 15 or 20 seconds that God just might, that Jesus might, that the Holy Spirit might speak to your spirit this morning. I would ask that you pray for me. That God might use my words and my preparation to further show us his goodness and how he speaks in the silence this morning. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. So this morning we're talking about the loudness of our world. I read about this study a while back. It was done by a social scientist at the University of Virginia. And he got, I think this was 2015, he got, I think, 11 different groups together and wanted to measure the effects of solitude and silence on people. And so he put these different people in different groupings, some at the school, some in their house. And he said, sit still with no interruptions, with no noise, with no phones for 8 to 15 minutes. One group, one group was actually put in a lab. And they were hooked up to these uh, like electronic shockers. 
And essentially they said, you're going to sit here in this space by yourself with nothing else in sheer silence, but you can shock yourself if you get really bored. They went into this and two-thirds of the people said, I will pay money to not be shocked. They said, I literally will pay money not to be shocked. It's only 15 minutes. But you know what they found? 25% of the women and 67% of the men got so bored in 15 minutes with no noise that they pushed the button and, and felt pain so they could feel something. We are addicted to noise. It starts at a young age. I drive up here every day with my daughter, and we get in the car, and the first thing she does before out of the driveway lately is she says, jingle bells, dad, jingle bells, we need to explain seasonality to my child, okay? And then I say, not yet, we're going to wait a little bit and sit in the car because dad can't handle an hour of jingle bells on the commute and love you to the fullest at the same time. And she starts to then not ask kindly, but demand. I said jingle bells, and I said, I'm your father. That never matters. In this world where she gets strapped into her car seat, and we're two seconds in, and we need noise. Think about how many TVs you walked past today to get here by 10 a.m. in the morning. Think about how many TVs we have in this building. Think about every time that you sit down and stop down, how many TVs are on. Think about how many times you put in earbuds. Think about when you're sitting and silent, how often we move away from that as quickly as possible. It reminds me of a quote from Pascal in the 16th century. He said, I have discovered that all unhappiness of men arises from one single fact. They are unable to stay quietly in their own room. It seems to be true in our culture that noise is rising. Literally, the CDC and the WHO talk now about something called noise pollution. Noise pollution is literally, it, it, it's noise that seriously harms humans' health that interferes with people's daily activities at school, at work, at home, and during the leisure time. The WHO went as far as to say that it's often referred to as the modern unseen plague for good reasons. It's, it's unseen, but certainly not unheard. According to the American Speech Language Hearing Association, an estimated 30 million Americans are exposed to dangerous noise level on a regular basis, and that's increased 10 million from a few years ago. What we see and what we hear and what we know is that noise has become easier than silence. Noise is the new normal in our culture. In his book on spiritual formation and spiritual discipline, Donald Whitney went as far as to say one of the costs of technology is our addiction to noise. We live in a loud world. But it's not just the fact that noise is all around us. It's not just the fact that noise has now become a pollution to the quality of our life. Noise is also not just there, it's proliferating, meaning it's only getting going one direction. It's getting louder and louder and louder everywhere we go. And I know this because, like I said, my daughter gets in the car and she says, Jingle Bells, I deal with that for about 10 minutes, and then I put my ear pods in, I play Jingle Bells for her, and I turn my volume up to drown out her noise. It's just getting louder. I know it's getting louder because, like we said last week, we live in a market economy that solves problems through products, and guess what we come out with every single year? A new and better way to drown out the noise. Have you guys heard of the Apple AirPod Maxes? I also don't know what the next thing's going to be titled because that seems to be the highest you can go, but they'll find it. And so you pay the cost of your firstborn child for an Apple product to drown out all of the noise. We pay good money for silence now because it's hard to find and the world is getting louder and louder and louder. There was a study done where it showed in 2015 
the World Health Organization found that nearly 50% of teens and young adults ages 12 to 35 are exposed to unsafe levels of sound from their headphones. A 2010 Journal of American Medicine Association analysis found a significant increase in young people with hearing loss from three decades ago. Because here's the deal. Not only is noise the new normal, the noise of our world is only getting louder, and loudness over time leads to a loss of hearing. There's a disease called, you know, the loss of hearing because you've been exposed to more noise over time. So what we have to deal with is a culture that's not only yelling at us all the time, but it's getting louder and louder and louder. And what we find in the middle of that loudness is that over time, if we're exposed to more and more noise, we don't hear more, we actually hear less. So how does that culture inform how we hear God? How we see God? How we think God speaks to us? What does the voice of God sound like? There's a study done, actually it was kind of a breakthrough this summer in June or July, you know what they found? They found, you know your last sense to go before you die is hearing? <laughs> it's the last one. I wonder how the ways that we hear impact, shape, craft, make us think about the ways that God connects with us. What does noise do as we try and hear the voice of God? And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to be in a story in 1 Kings 19. You can go there if you want to. It's about a guy named Elijah. He was a prophet of God, one of the big prophets of God. Let me just set the stage on Elijah because it's, it's really important. Because this story really only works in context from all the other stories of Elijah. Elijah was a really big prophet. If you look at the biblical narrative on Elijah and how he functioned, he's right up there with the best prophets Israel ever saw. Jesus, in the Gospels, when he had this moment on a mountain called the Transfiguration, he brought up two of his disciples. You probably know the story. And he said, come and see me for who I really am. Two people met him there, Moses and Elijah. They were the front runners of the prophetic ministry of Israel throughout the Old Testament. And what you see when you look at both those is how God used what they did in ways that were really insanely incredible. God spoke loudly through both Moses and Elijah. When you talk about Moses, it's like one miracle after another, after another, after another. God yelled through his prophet Moses to his people. He did the same thing with Elijah. So we're going to get to kind of the culmination of his prophetic ministry in just a second. But if you back up to chapter 17, you begin to see the loudness of God through his prophet Elijah. Chapter 17 starts like this. It says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, this is Elijah speaking, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. He lived in a culture, time, and place where people, his people, didn't respect his God. He felt like he was the only one left worshiping the true God, and that bothered him. His point was to rescue his people from the influences of, of Baal, from the influences of Ahab and Jezebel, from the influences of really awful people that worshiped other gods. And so he speaks out against it. And in chapter 17, verse 1, he says, here's the deal. This is what God is going to do through me. It's not going to rain again till I say it's going to rain again. That's the power of my word. It didn't rain for three and a half years, by the way. Think about that. How powerful must you must be if you can say, I'm going to stop rain until I decide to make it rain again. Yesterday, I spent 20 minutes trying to convince my daughter to put on socks so we could go to a bakery and buy her a cupcake. True story. Nothing happened. This dude can stop the rain for years with his words. 
And then from there, he wanders out into the wilderness, and, and, and birds feed him for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then he travels to this space with this widow. This is a pretty popular story, too. There's this widow in this small town, and it's her, and it's her only son. And he says, feed me. And she says, I don't, there's a drought. Have you heard about it? You caused it. There's a drought. <laughs> and there's no food left. I have one meal left for me and my son. And this is sad. She said, literally, and we're going to eat it, and then we're just going to die because we have no food left. And we have no resources to make food because without water, we can't eat. And Elijah says, make me some food. And the story simply goes that she was generous to Elijah. And so until the drought was over, literally her flour jar and her oil jar, things she needed for food, never went dry for years. In the middle of that narrative, this woman that lost her husband, her son, her only son, also dies, and Elijah literally raised him from the dead. Are you seeing a pattern that Elijah's a big deal yet, that when God speaks through and to Elijah, it's not in little ways, it's in big mountaintop moments. But that's not even the culmination of all we've done. If I did any one of those things, I'd call it a day, say life's been good, and I'd move on. I'd write a book on it, sell a million copies, and retire. This guy, what he did... His big mountaintop moment was on a mountain called Carmel. You might know this story too. It's in 1 Kings 18 and leading right up to 19. What he does is he's surrounded by about 850 prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth, two of the gods that his people were worshiping. And he kind of has a one-on-one square off. And I'm just going to summarize the entire chapter for us. But he says, why don't we put my God against your God? Let's build an altar, let's split a couple bowls, let's put them on top, and let's call down to our gods that they might accept the offering. It goes back to the Levitical system in the Old Testament so that gods might show up. Let's see whose gods are. God is better, mightier, more akin to listen and act. And so they do. They build this giant altar on top of this mountain. And it, he says to the prophets of, of Baal and Ashtoreth, he said, you guys go first. There's more of you. I'm the only one. You have 850. And so they start to pray in the morning. They start to pray that their gods might call down fire on this single sacrifice and nothing happens. And Elijah, who understandably is pretty cocky at this point, starts to mock them. <laughs> He's outnumbered 850 to one. I really like this man's moxie, you know? He starts to mock them saying, are your gods going to show up? Maybe your God just can't hear you. Maybe he's somewhere else right now busy. You know, he starts to literally go at them a little bit. And so they say, well, maybe we need to do more things. So they start cutting themselves to give their God the idea that they need to come consume this offering with fire and nothing happens. And sometime afternoon, so they've been praying for probably seven or eight hours, sometimes afternoon, Elijah says, guess what? It is my turn. And just to make it harder, so you don't think I had anything to do with this, he said, go fill up four buckets Fill up four buckets and dump it all over the wood. Soak it. And they did. He said, do it again. And they did. He said, do it a third time. And the text at this point in chapter 18 says, at that point, the wood was thoroughly thoroughly soaked through, and there was a trench of water around the outside. Then as he continues, it says that literally he prays to God, and he says, O God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, make it known right now that you are God in Israel that I'm your servant, and I'm doing what your orders are. He says, answer me, O God, O answer me, and reveal to this people that you are God, the true God, and that you are giving these people another chance at repentance. And the next verse says, immediately, the fire of God fell and burned up the offering, the wood, the stones, the dirt, and even all of the water in the trench, and the people said, the Lord is God, he is God. So when 
When Elijah prays, big things happen. When he says things, the people listen because God acts and moves. What you have to understand about Elijah coming into chapter 19 is how God had moved in his life up until this point and how he expected the voice of God to sound in his life. How he expected God to work. How he expected to deliver his people. Because like I said, there's this connection between Moses and Elijah, and we're going to see it going forward. But it's bigger than just they were two important people. Elijah wanted to be like Moses. All prophets did. They wanted to lead their people into the promised land again. They wanted to bring the flourishing of the Israelite people so that their God could be glorified. They wanted their people to stop suffering and dying. They wanted their people to see God as they saw God. He wanted to be like Moses. So he has this big mountaintop moment that goes beyond any explanation. He defies all the other gods of the other people. He defies their prophets and their priests and even their king. And you would think at this point that everybody turns around and this is the Disney happy ending moment, right? But right after the cumulative work in the ministry of Elijah, this is how the text we're in today, chapter 19 begins. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah with this warning. May the gods judge me severely if by this time tomorrow I don't take your life as you did theirs. And then it says in verse 3, Elijah was afraid. You know, we have these mountaintop moments where we think God speaks to us, where we know God speaks to us, and we think the whole world's going to change. And in his world at the moment, he realized it didn't, and he thought he did. He realized that somebody could still threaten his life and wasn't afraid of him or his God. And there's a load of conflicting emotions in that moment about how he feels, not just about himself, but about his God. And so he runs because he was afraid. And verse 4 says, I've had enough now, O Lord. Take my life. After all, I'm no better than my ancestors. Again, he's saying, I'm no better than any prophet that went before me. I thought I was going to be. I thought I was going to deliver my people. Have you been in those moments when you have this incredible experience with God and he completely changes your life, but then you get back to everybody else's life and you realize you forgot to change theirs, <laughs> you know? I remember the first time I, I kind of lived outside of America in the middle class, upper middle class bubble. I moved to Guatemala for a little while and their life is just different in every single way. I was there for about three months and taught at a school there. I knew seven words in Spanish, but I would just smile a lot. And I, I, I learned over time how to speak a little bit of it. I probably could speak Spanish like my two-and-a-half-year-old speaks English. I yell a lot. And I say jingle bells. So I, um, I spent some time there, and then I came back. And I came back because school was starting again, and I came back, and I thought, man, this is going to be amazing. And I came back, and I was blown away about, hey, God completely changed my life and changed my heart and changed how I see what good is and changed my idea of affluence and changed all of these things. But then I got dropped back into a world where it seemed like nothing changes. And when that happens, you either doubt your ability or God's. You say, God, where are you and why didn't you change everything else? God, I thought we had this agreement that you were going to change the world with me. I have missed seeing you work because it seems like you didn't work here when you just worked on me. Elijah gets in front of, he's in a shrub in this verse, and he says, God, there's no reason to continue. I can't do what I can do or you won't do what you promised you would do. End my life. He's sitting there and he's screaming, where did God go? Because it seems like all these things that you did do, you didn't do. I've been in that moment, you know, when you cry out desperate for God to show up. 
And Elijah was used to God showing up in really, really big ways. So the text continues, and it says, He got up and he ate and drank. That meal, uh, they gave him strength to, so God ministers to him again and gives him food. And he said that meal gave him strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. So, so God meets him in this place and says, you're going to go to this mountain, here's some food, I'll supply you with food, go and run. That, that Mount Horeb there is also known as another name, Mount Sinai. We see the connection between Moses and Elijah. And so he goes to the place where God first met his people. Mount Sinai is, incre- is, is incredibly formational for the people of God. It's where they met God for the first time. It's where they made a covenant with God to be his people. It's where God said, I'm going to change you and change the world through you. That's my hope. That's what would be good. It's where God first said, you are mine and I am yours. And so what happens is God sustains Elijah and says, go to this mountain. Just a really quick aside here that we need to hit so often when we're in the middle of places where we doubt, we feel like God runs from us like we run from him, but that's not true, you know? So often when we're in this middle of places where we're questioning our capacity or God's ability, we see that God supplies our needs for us and sustains us in those moments. Because the story of the Bible, we say this a lot, we're going to keep saying it, the story of the Bible is one-sided. It's God running towards us all the time, especially when we're running away. And that's what we see in this text. It's Elijah's questioning and he wants to die and God says, no, I'm going to sustain you. Let's go to the mountain where we do business, where I do business with my people. And so he goes to this mountain, also known as Sinai, and he meets Elijah there and he says in verse 10, and nine, all of a sudden the Lord spoke to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? I like when God does that, by the way. He tells you to go somewhere, he's like, what are you doing? You just catching up? No? Yeah? Uh, anyway, I think that God has a sense of humor that we underplay in churches, but that's something else. So he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I've been absolutely loyal to the Lord, the sovereign God. Even though the Israelites have abandoned the agreement they made with you and they've torn down your altars and killed your prophets by the sword, he says, I alone am left and now they want to take my life. God's saying, what is your grievance against me? And he says, I've done all these things. I'm the only one that's done all these things. And where are you? Where are you? And so God says, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Look, the Lord is ready to pass by. God says, I'm going to meet you and show you me, right? The question he asked of where is God and how do we hear God's voice? This is that moment he's about to answer. And here is what we're building towards If you're Elijah and you're used to seeing and hearing God in mountaintop moments, if you're Elijah and you're used to seeing miraculous displays of God's goodness all the time, if you're Elijah and the way that you've connected with God is through literal and physical and experiential loudness, what happens if that's not how God presents himself sometimes? You know, I think about church here. We talk about the ability to hear and noise. On a normal Sunday morning, outside of the awkward 30 seconds to Lynn made us suffer through before we read the verse together, we, we plan every minute of the Sunday morning. For when you walk in, there is always noise. There's noise in the lobby. There's noise in the church building. There's noise in every part of what we do. There's always noise. One Sunday, about seven years ago, one Sunday, a guy named Steve Reese got up here and he gave a sermon. I was sitting in the back of the room and it was on waiting and Exodus and Moses. And he got up here and... And he just sat down, and he didn't say a word. 
He didn't say a word for what felt like 40 minutes. I think it was 40 seconds. And I'm thinking in my head, did you forget your prompt? Do we need to help you? Should there be something going here? Did we miss a video cue? Like what's going on in the church? We constantly create a place of noise all the time. And that's not bad. My question is Elijah's questions here. If we constantly find God in the noise, what happens if he's not in the noise every once in a while? And so God says, go, stand in front of the cave, a very powerful wind went before the Lord, digging into the mountain and causing landslides, but the Lord was not in the wind. Uh, he, he picks three different things here. He picks wind, and then he's going to pick an earthquake, and then he's going to pick fire. And, and I think the reason why he does this is to further drive home the connection between the freer of his people, Moses, and what Elijah wanted to be, dealing with his insecurities and his ability to see God at work in the really big ways. And so when he says that there was this big windstorm, that, that really, to me, it's likened to how God showed up in the life of Moses when he's delivering his people from Egypt the first time. You remember this? They get back to buy a seat. They get back to buy a sea, and Pharaoh says, look, they have nowhere to go. Let's go slaughter them all. And the people start saying, Moses, what have you done? It would have been better to stay as slaves than to die by the sea. It's the Red Sea moment. And so God says, Moses, reach your staff out over the waters. And it says, a mighty east wind came. Remember this? A mighty east wind came and separated the waters. So a mighty wind came because that's how we would expect God to show up. That's how God showed up in the life of Moses. That's how God has been showing up in the life of Elijah. And it says, but God wasn't in the wind. But it keeps going. After the windstorm, <laughs> there was an earthquake. I go back to the idea in the life of Moses because not only did God show up as wind in the life of Moses, but he also showed up as an earthquake. When they first got to the mountain, to the land of Sinai, when they first got there on the other side of the Red Sea, they got to the mountain, and it says fire descended upon the mountain, and the mountain shook because God's presence was there. When they first found God at Sinai, way back thousands of years before this moment happened, when they found God the first time, he showed up as a wind in part of the Red Sea. He showed up as an earthquake and said, I'm here on Sinai. You need to be a little afraid because I'm a big deal. Everybody don't touch the mountain and so we're showing up in the same way here, seemingly. And so this earthquake happens, and you know how it goes. God wasn't in the earthquake. And then fire, just because we need to check off the trifecta of how God shows up. It says, and then after that, there was a fire. And if you guys know the story of Moses, as he led his people out, as they wandered for 40 years, what led them at night? Fire. Every single night, God led his people, spoke to his people through fire. And so God shows up and says, let me tell you about who I am. There's this big windstorm. There's this big earthquake. There's this big fire. These ways you would expect me to be, these mountaintop moments that we're going to tell our stories about to our kids, but I'm not in any one of them. My question is simply, why? Why is he not? Because he could have been. God can show up how God wants to show up anytime he wants to show up. That's one of the benefits and perks of being God. But he doesn't. What lesson is he trying to teach his servants in this moment? What was he trying to tell Elijah about himself? And so the text goes on and says, he didn't show up in any of those things, but after the fire, there was a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he covered his face with a robe and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave, meaning he knew that God was here and about to speak to him. So I think a lot of the story is about our expectations of how God speaks. 
I think if you're going to talk about what the Bible is, a lot of times we have to see that the Bible is a story of God pursuing his people, but the missed expectations of his people on how God's supposed to do this thing. Whether it's the Old Testament or whether we talked about it last week, whether it's just how they missed Jesus show up. Because the problem is, if we're used to seeing or hearing God show up in certain ways, if God acts outside of our expectations, oftentimes we miss God speaking to us all together. And we end up where Elijah is. And we say, is it my problem or is it God's problem? Am I not good enough or did he abandon me? Why is God using this moment of silence to speak to Elijah? I think this comes down to what does the voice of God sound like? In, in an incredibly noisy world, I think we've conditioned ourselves to believe that he speaks like our world speaks loudly. You know? I mean, it's kind of what we do on Sunday mornings here in a, in a good bit. We have these moments where we get together, these pep rallies for Jesus, and there's so much more than that, but we get excited about what God is doing and who God is. We teach the scriptures, we sing together, we pray together, all amazing thing. Here's what the cost is. The cost is if this is the only place you think that you can speak to, interact with, hear from God, we have lost the purpose and point of Sunday morning altogether. There's a book that I absolutely love. I've quoted it before. It's not going to stop me from quoting it again. It's called The Liturgy of the Ordinary, and this priest says, if we make spiritual formation all about big, fancy, mountaintop experiences, which often happen when we create them at church as church leaders, we aren't giving them tools for which they can become more holy the rest of the week. We're enslaving them to get their spiritual highs from us. We become spiritual drug dealers. The only food we've been giving them is feasts, and sometimes you have to make it a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I love that. How do we hear God? How do we expect to hear God in a very, very loud world. When it says that there was a gentle whisper there, literally what that's translated as, the translation's really tough in the Hebrew because we don't have a phrase for it, but most Hebrew scholars would agree that the phrase there isn't, he showed up in a whisper. It's not like a creepy whisper over your right ear, God saying, hi, Elijah. You know, that's, that's scary, not comforting, okay? But literally what they translate that as in a lot of places is God showed up in the sound of sheer silence. And they translate it whisper or still small voice because the question then remains, how do you hear silence, you know? The purpose and, and point of the phrase in the Hebrew is to show that God is showing up not in a whisper, but in sheer, unadulterated silence. So we have to ask a question, why does he do that? A couple things, I think about it. One, I think what he's showing Elijah is that oftentimes when God speaks in the silence, <laughs> We move from hearing the urgent to the important. Does that make sense? So when everything's yelling at us all the time, and sound is always around, and sound is always getting louder and louder and louder, so often we just hear the loudest thing and not the most important thing. And that's true if we're listening to TV or, you know, like, if, for example, I'm trying to watch football this afternoon and my daughter is playing and my wife is doing something else and my air conditioning comes on, which sounds like a freight train running through, through my house, I'm going to turn up that television as loud as I can because I don't need to hear the most important thing. I need to hear the most, uh, I don't need to, I need to hear the most urgent thing, which would be the football game, for example, right? The idea that we hear what's in front of us, not necessarily what's best for us. I think it's, it's best on, let me, let me do it like this, on Friday afternoons and Friday mornings, my wife and I work from home. And my kid's there with us. <laughs> and lately, it's been harder and harder to work 
because she will come back and she will be banging on the door like, Dad, please stop working. Please stop working. I'm trying to write a sermon for you people. Please stop working. And I'll say, I have to work right now. And she started, lady, be like, please don't work. And I'll walk out to get like some tea or some water. And she'll say, are you, are you done working yet? And I'll say, no, <laughs> this is going to happen for the next 15 years of your life. You need to get used to it, you know? My point is, in that moment, look, I love you guys, but the better good is hanging out with my daughter always. But I bend the knee to the most urgent good, which is Sunday is coming because. And that's an example you can pick apart, and there's goods and bads there, but you get the idea. Is that oftentimes, without silence, we are slaves to the urgent and not the important. And so what's happening here in this moment is I think God is calling Elijah to remember what's really important, to look past what's happening in the moment to who God is in all moments. I think, too, when he speaks through silence, what we do, what he's doing is he's, he's forced to sit with himself, and that is often the hardest kind of noise to, to overcome. It's Elijah going back to that phrase, after all, I'm no better than my ancestors. One of the hardest parts about silence and I'm talking not like I have a worship CD going on in the background. I just said CD. I am old, right? Spotify going on in the background. I'm talking absolute silence. Some of the hardest parts about that is you have to sit with yourself, and you might realize you don't like yourself sometimes. Elijah sits there in silence, and he's forced to question whether he's good enough, whether he's better than any of his ancestors. All of his insecurities rise to the top. But ultimately, I think God is doing in this moment it's not saying that he doesn't show up in earthquakes and wind and fire, because he does, and he will again in the text. He will again in the New Testament and the Old Testament. I think what he's showing Elijah here is that I show up in silence because, because when we seek God in silence, we remember that he doesn't only speak on mountaintop moments, but he's present in every moment. And if we make God only approachable through the big climatic events in our life, we forget that he's around for all of the events in our life. We reduce God from being a partner with us <laughs> to being a consultant who shows up when we do X, Y, and Z. Because Elijah was a guy who had God show up in really big ways and forgot, I think he forgot that God was also present in the small ones, still working in ways that he couldn't see it. And in a culture of nonstop noise that's only getting louder, we need silence to sharpen our ability to see an ever-present God. Because really, you know what I think? I think the moments that move us the most, I think the moments that have the most influence over time aren't the youth camp you went to when you were in eighth grade and did a rededication. I don't think the moments that make your marriage the best were your wedding day. I think they're the Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays following that in perpetuity. I think the silent moments are the ones, the simple moments are the ones that shape us more than the big moments do. And if we see God, like our culture sees everything else, that the loud, big, banging moments are the ones where things actually change, I think, I think, I think, we've missed how God works in our world the majority of the time. It's a reminder in silence that God's with us in all moments. And in a loud world, we often forget that. Years ago, I was speaking with a friend who'd lost his wife after, I don't know, 50 or 60 years. And he said, you know, Charlie, it's not the big moments I remember. Sure, Christmas is hard. And sure, anniversaries are hard. But what I really miss are how she brushes her teeth in the morning. And I said, that's weird. Nobody misses that. What I really miss are the way that she ate her cereal or poured her milk or fill in the blank and all these simple, silent things. Those are the things that shape me that I realize that were good, you know? 
In a loud world, if we forget that God speaks in silence, we forget that God's around all the time, speaking to us through one another. Elijah needed a reminder of that. Henry Nouwen says it like this, the more we train ourselves to spend time with God and God alone, the more we will discover that God is with us at all times and in all places. So Elijah's moment where he forgot that God speaks not just in the home runs, but in the singles, right? And, and how this chapter ends, I'll summarize it. Essentially, is God says, I'm not done working. You're going to go to this other town. You're going to find 7,000 people who are faithful to me. You're going to anoint your successor, and he's going to literally have influence on kings for the next couple generations. And in the very end of this chapter is when literally it says, then he got up and followed Elijah and became his assistant, talking about Elisha. It's the idea that God continues to move and will continue to go forward. And just because God didn't work how Elijah thought he would work, it didn't mean he wasn't working at all. Those are the things we find out only in the silence. I'm not saying that God doesn't use the mountaintops. I'm simply saying that if we only see God as a mountaintop God, we've missed most of what God does in our world. How he speaks to us in the quiet places. That's increasingly hard to find in a loud world. So I guess the question is if we don't find time for silence... What are we missing God telling us? What are we missing about God? How is the loud world shaping how we see God speaking to us? A God that speaks in silence because he's with us in all places. And so we believe in spiritual practices and all spiritual practices are, they're conduits of grace in the life of the believer. They are times when we can, as a people, say, I want to be over here and I'm right here. I need some help getting there because I can't do it on my own. So what things can I help practice intentionally to intentionally make me look more like Jesus? Last week was on solitude. This week is on silence. Not just some noise in the background, but absolute silence so that we can learn to hear God again because that's how he speaks all the time. And so when we talk about it, I love what this book, Life Together, Bonhoeffer writes, and he talks about just the value of silence and he talks about how silence manifests itself in our world and in our life. And he basically says, I'll, I'll paraphrase it, but he says, here's what happens is when you wake up in the morning, you're silent. And when you go to bed at night, you're silent. And that's for the purpose of reminding ourselves that we are with God. And so the question is, how do we practice silence in our world? And that's a tough thing to do. We have to acknowledge that's a difficult thing to do in our world that's getting louder and louder and louder. So let me just give you a couple of practical ways that we can pursue silence together. And when we talk about spiritual practices, we have to remember, I'll say it every week for the next couple, that we do not, we do not come to this with rigidity or we do not come to this with a legalism, like you have to do this for God to love you. He already does. We come to this by saying, if the best good is looking more like Jesus, this might help. And so it's not a mandate, it's an invitation saying, take what you want, take what you will, practice what you feel like you need because we want to help each other look more like Jesus. And it begins with grace. So we don't start with where we want to be, we start with where we are now. If you start with an hour-long bit of silence in your garage, you're probably going to fail. And I don't mean that you can't do it, I'm simply meaning that is way more difficult than where probably most of us are at right now. And so we start by saying, how can we cultivate a practice of silence to hear God in our lives? Let me just give you a couple probably pretty common sense examples that I think are good. One, uh, turn off notifications on your phone sometimes. That's just, that's just a personal one. If you can always be reached all the time, then you're never fully in a place where silence is always um, attainable. And so I think there's some keys that make silence worthwhile. One, I would say, start by planning it out. Intentionality is key. 
Silence won't happen on its own. I think the world has proven that. So find a time and find a place where you can be silent. And for you, that might be in your car on the way to work. Maybe you don't turn on the radio when you get in the car and you just sit in silence. One author talks about one-minute retreats. So when you get to church on a Sunday or when you get to work on a Monday, you just sit in your car in silence for one minute before you go inside anywhere. And you ask God, what are you doing? What are you doing in me? And what do you want to do through me in this next space? The idea that we need to set a stopwatch and a timer because otherwise I will look at my phone. You know, if I'm going to set it for a minute, I'm getting 15 seconds in. I'm like, I got to check. It's probably been 17 minutes. It's been seven seconds, Charlie, you know? Know that your timer will help guide you and inform you in those moments. Find the places where you can find solitude. One writer this week that I read and a good, good friend of mine shares something in common. They said that my place of silence and solitude is my shower. And they said literally that their shower in this moment was not just a place of silence and solitude, but it was their fortress of solitude. So I'd ask, where are those moments for you? Where are those places for you? How can you find in the day-to-day little ways to practice silence? Because they're there. You just got to find them. And I'd say start with a minute. And if you want to move beyond that, sit and meditate on God's word for just one minute and see what he's saying through it to you. Two you can go a little bigger if you want to. Delin talked about it, but we're going to do a silent retreat up here. It's going to be really good. I've actually never done one of these, and so I'm very excited. I'm very scared. <laughs> I don't know if you know that I like noise, and I like to be the cause of the noise. So this is going to be difficult for me, but so incredibly good. We have a video that we shot this last week that I'll go, I think it's on the website now, but it's going to talk to some people about, hey, I didn't know what this was either, but let me tell you what it did for me. So I'd encourage you, that's a next step you can take to find the beauty of silence and how God speaks to us. And then finally, like I said, I just share that with the people around you. Because so often, so often, so often, we do the things that we want to do and we tell the people around us we're going to do it. It's easy not to do things that nobody knows we want to do. So tell somebody. Say, hey, I'm going I'm to do a, a minute of silence every morning. Let me tell you about how it went today. Or five minutes of silence or come to the silent retreat with me. Because when we do that together as a people, we start to see God in different ways. We start to hear God in different ways. We start to be a people that's formed by silence and even solitude from last week that's formed by silence so that we can better hear God. And I wonder what that will do for us, you know? In a world that's so loud, sometimes it drowns out God's voice. There's, I'm deaf in my left ear, and if you guys knew that, that's why I'm so loud. I'm deaf in my left ear. So every once in a while, I'll find videos of, have you ever seen videos of toddlers get cochlear implants? So these kids that can't hear. And then there's massive technology now that wasn't around when I was a child in 1987. And so they can take people that can't hear, and they can literally make them hear. And there was one that went viral back in March, and his name's Christopher. You can Google it when you get home. But this kid, for the first time, he's four or five, he hears the voice of his mother, and his world is set on fire. It forever changed his life. What would it be like if we learned to listen to God's voice all over again and heard it in every space of our our lives, not just the mountaintop moments. How that form us as a community? Because there's one thing I know. It's in the scriptures, whether it's from the verses we put on the screens. Silence is a precursor to worship because we get to see how good God is. And so we take moments of silence together because it helps filter out the noise of our world and shape us and mold us and help us see God in the every moment, not just the mountaintop ones, but also because it creates in us a people of peace and worship. And may we be that in the middle of a culture that so often is seemingly spinning out of control. I want to end 
with a poem by John Greenleaf Whittier talking about silence and solitude. He said, drop thy still dews of quietness till all our, seething ce- till all our striving cease. Take from our souls the strain of stress and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of thy peace. Let me pray for us.